Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods, and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. What's up, amigos? It's 2020. It's the Prodigy Maker Show, and we're going live. It's me, Chris Lewitt, and I'm here with my co-host, Sammy. He's back for the new year. What's up, Sammy? Say hello. Sammy's my Tennis Academy dog, and those of you who know my academy or know the show, you know that Sammy is a regular on the program, but Sammy boy, do you want to hang out with me or do you want to go take a nap? Want to hang out for a little while? All right, you can hang out with me. I just got back from work and Sammy likes to chill with me in the kitchen. We are passing from the New York City area from my home. And this is our 31st show. I'm very proud of that, guys. I'm proud. Knows what's going on with the show. All right, you got to go night-night. Go night-night. Sorry for that delay, guys. We had a little network problem. I'm not going to tell you what service provider I have. Driving me crazy. Having a, we, we should be good now. I've got a good, strong connection. And Sammy looks like he's going to go night-night on my couch. Hopefully he won't pee. And then we'll be good to go. But how is everybody? Happy New Year. It's good to be back live. Going to have a great show tonight. We're going to talk about the kick serve, one of my favorite shots to teach. We're going to talk about parents, the infamous parents in tennis, what makes a good parent. I've got some thoughts on that. And what else? What else can I share with you guys? I thought we'd have a little fun and talk a little bit about Nick Kyrgios, my man. You know, I think he's the best talent on the pro tour right now as a next-gen player. What do you guys think? Agree? Disagree? Just thought it'd be fun to talk about that. So that's kind of the overview of the show. What else? I had a good holiday. We did a lot of family stuff. You know, I have four kids and we have a new baby. So it was an amazing time. Thank you for the waves, guys. Thank you for saying hello. Appreciate it. We'll give time for everyone to tune in. I think we're going to have to do the show around this time, like 10, 10, 15, late night. I'm not afraid of the late night. You know what? There are some great radio shows that go on late at night over the years, and sometimes it's fun to stay up late and listen to the radio. This is kind of the next-gen version of that, where we go live on Facebook late at night. But for those of you who are on the West Coast, or some of you who may be in a different time zone, this time may work for you guys, so it should be good. I know I get a lot of West Coast viewers, so... Good for you guys the later I go on. So I had to put my kids to bed. I had, I've been working later on Thursday nights with some players. So I guess we'll do this a little bit later now. 10, 10, 15. That's fine for me. I like to stay up late with you guys. The night time is my time. I've got a good energy. After I work on the court, after playing tennis, 
I love to talk tennis online like this, so it's a good fit. I try to do the show right after I come off the court when my mind is energized and I'm I'm feeling great. You know, nothing, nothing. There's nothing like hitting the the tennis ball and playing with your students. I get to play with a lot of my students, which is a lot of fun. Although I joke today that my UTR is going down every year now that I'm getting older. I'm not happy about that. I'm dropping now. I have to keep my game up to stay sharp for these young kids. All right. So holiday. We were in Vermont. You know, my club is in Vermont. We have our summer camp in Vermont. Guys, if you're thinking about summer camp, come on. Chris Lewitt Tennis Academy summer camp. It's special. It's different. Two players per court. Only two players per court. And I work with all the kids. We have small groups, professional fitness training, Spanish way, my own club. If you build it, they will come. Like Field of Dreams up in the Vermont mountains. I did it. I bought my own place and I dedicated it to, to high performance tennis training. Right now we have, uh, we're going to our fourth year of summer camp. So if you're, if you have a kid and you're into serious training in the summer, you don't want to get bogged down by the numbers. You don't want to go where you're just uh, facing the crowd and you want serious, tough Spanish type training can come train with me. Let me know if you need more info on that and I will get you connected. But let's get to the show. Enough about me. We are going to talk about KickServe. Okay, KickServe. Guys, throw me the questions if you have any questions about the kicker. I'm going to get into, get into a few myths. There's a lot of myths regarding the KickServe. I've been posting some articles this week about the KickServe, posting some articles about parents and and what, what some parents do great. Well, let's talk about that. Let's start with the kicker. What's a common myth with the kicker? Well, the first one that I, you know, I, I made a list of five, I think five myths. There's probably more, but just for the sake of a short essay, I think I made five. But kicker, most people think that you got to wait really long to teach the kicker. So you got to wait till it till a kid is like 14 or 15. That's sort of the common advice that you're going to avoid doing the kicker when a kid is young and then you're slowly going to get into it later when they're quote unquote stronger. And you know, what can I say? I don't think that's necessary. I think you can teach a kicker very young. You can do it I don't know, as young as probably seven, eight, nine. It's not going to be a great kicker at that age because the kids are little and you have to be very careful with how you, you teach it. So you have to teach, you have to teach it and, and watch out for some of the pitfalls that some kids fall into, like extreme arching their back. We'll talk about back arch a little bit, but you know, extreme tosses to the left, extreme arching of the back, overuse. What else? Some kids are, are very abrupt or not very fluid with their motions and you know, those are some of the typical things you see over over serving, like serving too many in a row, like too many, too much practice, over arching the back. That can be bad for the back, and sometimes if you're reaching too far to the left, can be bad for the shoulder. Uh, also, the toss location. If the toss location is off, it can be very can be bad for the shoulder. Biomechanically, if the toss is behind the player too much, like towards the back fence. It can, it can put more stress on the shoulder. So 
there's definitely some pitfalls to look out for, but if you're knowledgeable, if you know what you're looking for, you can definitely teach the kick at a very young age. I would say you can start the brushing action at seven or eight, and you can start to get a pretty decent topspin serve at between eight, nine, and 10. For, for most athletic kids, I work with a lot of athletic high-performance kids, so I'm not talking about your everyday club player. My, my focus is, is high-performance junior development, so that's sort of the way that I the lens that I see things through. But typically, you can get a pretty good spinner under 10, and it's not going to be a huge kick. It's going to be sort of a topspin roll. The RPMs aren't going to be crazy, but it's going to have a nice loop on it, and it's going to kick up a little bit on the opponent's shoulder. You're not going to have to wait till later when a kid is stronger to get the big kicker or the heavy RPM and more of that twisting action left to right. But I think it's better, in my opinion, better to get the mechanics done right under 10, especially under 12. Get the kick serve right. Do it in a safe way. Be responsible. and Don't over, don't over serve. Don't over practice the kick serve where you go out and do like three or four big baskets or something. You know, be very careful with the little shoulders. Be careful with the little kid's back and make sure you're arching in the, the right way. That leads me to another myth that there's no back arch. There is a significant back arch, but it's the upper back. It's not the lower back. So the danger on the kick serve is the lower back arch, which is, which is called lumbar extension. So you don't want to hyperextend the lumbar area, the lower spine. That part should be straight, uh, almost completely straight, and it should be secure. And as you go up the spine, the thoracic spine has more mobility, you can you can extend there and you can you can really extend the cervical spine which is the neck so what you're looking for is a really big arch in the neck and an arch in the upper back to open the chest because that's a key part of the technique of a kick serve is opening up the chest to the ball and then you want to keep the lower part of the back secure and i never hear coaches or quote-unquote experts talking about this. has been a frustrating journey for me for years. I've been to many, many high-performance conferences, and, and you always hear that the back is straight, the back is straight, blah, blah, blah. And when you look at high-speed video, you see that there's a clear curvature in the upper back. And I remember one conference, I was taking a course with Mark Kovacs, and he was talking to the same shuck and jive, and I just I got so frustrated. I'd, the whole room was looking at the same picture and there was clearly a thoracic extension. There was a big upper back arch and the chest was open to the ball, which is, which every kick serve looks like that. Where the, the, uh, the chest is open to the ball. The neck was really hyperextended. The neck is really arched backward. And, and I just raised my hand. I said, Mark, there's clearly a back arch there. You, everyone can see it on the video or on the, on the film. You know, we were watching uh, some clips. And it was like probably 50 coaches in the room. And all of them were just looking dumbfounded at the same thing. And, and Mark finally, had, he, he goes, you know what? You must be talking about thoracic extension. And I said, yeah. And at the time, I didn't know what thoracic extension was. This is many years ago. It's probably over 10 years ago. And I was like, that's a good term for it. Okay, let's call it that. The upper, the upper back, whatever you want to call it, the upper back is extending and the chest is opening up. And that's thoracic extension. That's the first time I heard that word. I, I 
takes me back to that room that I, I was to that lecture room and we were all watching the video together and Mark Kobach said, yeah, thoracic extension. You, you must be looking at thoracic extension. Well, I said, whatever you want to call it, Mark, that's clearly a back arch, right? So my point is when you're teaching this thing, if you want to teach it well, you, you got to teach the kids how to open up their chest. You got to teach them Cerv uh, cervical spine, C-spine extension, and that's going to get their face up to the bottom of the ball. And then, you know, you're going to have a much easier time getting the kicker that way than if you tell the kids, okay, everything's got to be straight, everything's got to be straight, and, and oh, by the way, you can't toss to the left. You know, that makes it even doubly difficult to learn a kick serve. So you have a lot of little kids, and the coaches are well-meaning, the parents are well-meaning, they want to prevent injury, right? So, they tell the kids, okay, be really careful, keep your back straight, don't toss too far, or don't toss to the left at all maybe, because that's another myth, that the tosses are always the same, like the toss is in the same spot as the first serve. So you have a lot of coaches who will say, okay, we're going to keep the toss the same as your slice and flat serve, because it's going to help the skies. Which is kind of true in the long term. You might want to go that route and try to bring the tosses close together. But it's a myth. Most pros, and especially most kids, have a differentiation in the toss location. And the toss is typically at least a couple inches more to the left on the kicker. And it's also closer to the player, more above the face, above the body, closer to the baseline than the first serve. First serve toss is always more in front than the kick serve toss. And left and right, there's almost always a differentiation where the players will toss. It may be very subtle, like an inch, or it may be a couple inches to the left more so that they can arch their upper back more and open up their chest more and get more inside-out uh, side spin on the ball. It gives you more twist when you toss it like that. It gives you more action. And pros are always looking to get more jump, more action on their kicker. So that's why they, they push that toss farther to the left. But... It's crazy. So you have these well-meaning coaches, parents, whatever, and they got a little kid in front of them, let's say 8, 9, 10, 11, whatever, or 14 or 15 if you're doing the teenage kick serve thing, which by the way, I think is potentially a big mistake because when you have a teenager and they're going through a big growth spurt and they haven't learned that motor program, it's, it's a tricky thing to introduce when a kid is growing fast. I think, and I've argued this in past essays, I think I could make a pretty good case or at least a good a case that you could get more injured learning that motion when it's brand new to you as a growing teenager than you could when you're young when you're when you're first learning how to serve and you you get the whole thing ingrained from from the beginning or relatively early in the in the in in your growth and development rather than trying to introduce a complex movement like that a potentially risky movement uh, a movement with an injury risk when, it, when a child is going through a very fast growth spurt, which is a dangerous time in general for an athlete. So I think I can make a pretty good case that it's better to teach it pre-puberty than during puberty or post-puberty. Post maybe maybe there'd be a good case for that too. That's waiting a long time though to develop a serve that you need in tennis. So my argument is it's safer, it can be safer, if the appropriate parameters are in place and you teach this thing in a, in a safe way, with a conscientious way, and you do it pre-puberty 
so that the movement is ingrained before the child starts to go through a difficult, uh, a challenging growth, growth and development cycle. That's sort of the case that I'm making about that. And if you guys want to debate it, let me know. Throw out some questions or comments. I'm happy to, to uh, argue about it with you a little bit. Obviously, this is just going to be opinion and, and empirical evidence, experience, because nobody knows for sure. This is just... Coach, uh, you got to take, take a coach's experience and, and opinion on this and best guess because we don't have enough sports science. There are no specific studies on the kick serve pre-puberty or, you know, during puberty or post-puberty, which one's safer. Nobody's done anything like that. So we just have very limited data, scientific studies in general in tennis. So it's very it's, – it's, when we have some evidence, it's usually – just a, a study or two, which is kind of sketchy, you know, it's kind of shady to base your teaching or your planning only on, on uh, one study, you know, there's not, a, there's not a prevalence, there's not a preponderance of evidence typically in tennis, there's typically just a study here, a study there, sometimes the studies, the methodology is flawed, and you, you generally don't have a great consensus because there's not a lot of smart research scientists studying tennis, in general, and pe- people should be aware of that. You know, when you see a new study comes out, come out, the whole industry starts to move towards that. Good example is the myth of the first four. <laughs> a good example is the, you know a study, quote unquote. You know, you see statistical analysis. You see a, t- a study of 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 rally length and and shot tolerance and things like that, and you have quote unquote experts coming out with uh, studies that are of based on questionable data, and they're very questionable conclusions, and you have the whole industry moving towards the first four methodology based on one person's viewpoint and study and conclusion, uh, rather than uh, a consensus across across the the research uh, based on multiple... Uh, objective sources. You know, you just have maybe one person doing this and they say this and they may be very persuasive and dynamic and then everyone just, like, I call the tennis coach industry, like, the lemmings. The lemmings just follow that and then maybe a decade from now somebody else will do uh, their own study, come to maybe a different conclusion and then the the whole boat turns that way. I've heard one pundit call the tennis industry like a ship, you know, like a, a cruise ship, and it just starts turning in different directions based on on the latest trend or the latest quote-unquote scientific study. But, you know, you got to realize that these studies are limited, that sometimes they're flawed in their methodology, they may be flawed in their conclusions, and it's not like the medical field where, where you, you can have a, a number of experts around the world each trying to objectively research something and find out the truth. You know, in tennis, it's a little shadier than that, right? So I got first question of the night. Is it a kick-serve question? It's from my buddy, Jay Batra. What's up, Jay? I coach Jay's son, Ian. Great up-and-coming player. Remember that name, Ian Batra. Great tennis name, I might say. Jay says, any negative impact on the shoulder after hitting a whole lot of serves? Do you recommend any quantity time limit for serves? Example, no more than 100 serves in one hour time frame. For sure. So 100 serves is a pretty good number. 
my friend Mark Kovacs, who I bounce a lot of ideas off of and I follow religiously. Mark is one of the smartest minds in sports science and I just passionately follow all the research that he does. Unfortunately, Mark is moving away from tennis a little bit, which is a shame. I don't blame him because there's not enough, maybe tennis is not lucrative enough. There's a lot more opportunities for a, a guy like Mark who's so smart and dynamic. There's more opportunities for him maybe outside of the tennis world. You know, he's doing other sports and I, maybe I don't blame him. Like I said, we're, we're lucky to have any smart minds doing any research studies in tennis because it's not very lucrative. It, it, there, there's much more reward for doing research, at least scientific research, sports science research in other sports like football, baseball, basketball, Olympic, maybe Olympic sport. It depends, but it doesn't seem like we get the best. We, we don't often get the best minds in tennis. So when we do have someone smart like Mark Kovacs in tennis, I try to take advantage and absorb everything that guy puts out. And for example, Mark rec recommends 60 to 80 serves in a session. 60 to 80 serves is, a, is pretty conservative. you got to know your player. So depending on the age and the player, how resilient they are, you could probably go more. Tony Nadal recommends 20 serves at a time. That is very conservative. I'm not sure you can develop a great serve with that sort of limiter on the, on the quantity of serving. So 20 at a time, it barely gives you enough repetitions to get to get a, a flow going to get a rhythm to get good muscle memory development so I you could argue that's one reason why some of the Spanish players don't have great serves if they're operating under that type of formula maybe they're being too safe with their serving and, and some Spanish coaches are very conservative about serving and that can really be to their detriment because if for example you limit your player too much and they don't get enough repetition they don't have enough time to develop all the fundamentals, to get the targets going. To, uh, you, know, you may not develop a world-class serve. And you see that with a lot of Spanish players. A lot of Spanish players do not have world-class serves. they got world-class everything else, but their serves are sometimes lacking. Unless you, you're like Feliciano Lopez, or who's another great Spanish server. Not too many of them, right? So you see a lot of players from Spain who have rather sad serves compared to the rest of their game. And when you see the philosophy of Tony Nadal, 20 serves at a time, that may be, that's part of the reason why. Another reason is philosophically, they just don't, they just don't believe in serving as much as ground strokes in Spain. It's a big problem. They have to change that in Spain, by the way. So Jay, I hope that helps. I think 100 is a pretty good number. The best way, if you want to get a lot of reps in, is to give the shoulder a rest. So do a bucket, and then do something else. Do some rest in between. And then maybe come back to it. Because even though I just said 60 or 80 or 100, you know, be conservative. There's something to be said for going out and doing a lot of serving. And just mastering that skill. You just have to be really careful. I believe in extreme repetition. But with the serve, the overhead movement, you got to be careful. You, you have to monitor your player very, very closely. And if there's any sort of hint at a shoulder getting tired or sore, you should stop it. You really should stop and maybe just come back to it another day or two later. You should not push too far 
doing many doing too many repetitions on the serve because the shoulder is is gold the shoulder needs to be cared for in tennis players so hope that helps uh guys shoot me out your questions if you have them i want to give a shout out to everyone all the fans of the show i know over the holiday i got a lot of positive emails from people who listen to the podcast or people who listen to the youtube show or we have the Facebook show going. So you can catch me in a, lot of different, in a lot of different places. And I'm proud of that. I think people are loving the podcast where they can listen to, to the show at their convenience, when they're working out, when they're driving, stuff like that. I, I'm personally a podcast addict. So I love listening to podcasts. I listen to podcasts in tennis. I listen to podcasts in emergency medicine because I'm, I'm an EMT and I'm, I'm hoping to go to paramedic school in a few years, I, I drive, I, I'm a volunteer uh, ambulance driver for my city, so I'm really interested in that. I just love podcasts, so I think the podcast is really blowing up. We're getting hundreds of views, hundreds and hundreds of views per week, and a lot of positive feedback. I wanted to give a shout out to my buddy in Istanbul, Turkey, made a nice friend over there. I was checking out his son's game. He sent me a lot of his son's videos, and he wanted some feedback about his son's game from Turkey. And that was awesome. That was so cool. I got to take a look at his young son. He looks like he's got a lot of potential, actually. And I just wanted to give a shout out and say good luck to you guys. And thanks for sending me the videos. That was really cool. And like I said, if you ever need help with your son's training, just let me know. I have a lot of parents from around the world sending me videos for review. I love to give feedback. Some parents may not like the feedback because I'm pretty honest. I'm a straight shooter. I don't like to sh- sugarcoat things, and anyone who's worked with me knows that. So if you're going to send me videos, don't get pissed off at me if I tell you that something looks bad or you know this doesn't look good or uh, I don't like what I see. But uh, if your kids got some potential, if they got skills, then you're going to hear it from me. I will I will give you the straight dope, and you will get a legit answer from me. I won't sugarcoat things. You get the you get the truth. No shuck and jive. All right, any other kick serve questions, myths, development questions? Hmm. Ah, a good one. There's a big myth that every player should learn to kick serve. So I wrote in my essay this week that a lot of girls, especially girls who are petite, not that powerful, they're a lot better off learning a slice. And I think some people might debate that with me, but I think I'm on pretty good standing, solid foundation for that. Basically, you can look at all the pros now making dollar bills, bills with the Z, B-I-L-L-Z. They're making bills with fewer skills, also with the Z. They're making, they don't have a kick server and they're making money every week on the WTA tour they don't need a kick serve. And oftentimes the kick serve is a detriment to female players because the female game is built around the return and the returners just pounce on that kick serve and the females get, uh, the girls get killed off that thing. So they're much better off throwing in a hard low slice rather than, than, than the, the kicker which tends to sit up. Now, if you got a Sam Stozer, if you got a Serena or anyone who's got a really good shoulder, they're sort of built a little more like a man, and more and more women are, are showing up on tour like that, then, then you can teach them like a man, you know, teach them the big kicker, and it's going to be effective. 
I just did a workshop up at the club in Vermont. I have a club in Vermont, and we did a workshop up there, and we, we did an hour video analysis in the classroom. We did a lot of on-court work. It's a whole day on the kickserve. It was a great workshop. We had 10, 15 participants, players and coaches and parents. It was awesome. It's tough to get a big turnout up in Vermont because we're up in the mountains there. We got a big turnout. and We filmed the whole thing. So by the way, guys, we're going to put that up at the online school, clta.teachable.com. We'll have the whole kickserve course up online available really soon. So I'm excited about that. We had a great turnout and we spent the whole day working on kickers. We took the appropriate rest in between. So just in case Uncle Tony is watching and worried, we took a lot of rest in between uh, the reps. We didn't do, we did more than 20 at a time. But okay, it was a great workshop and we did a, a classroom video analysis. And we studied Sam Stozer's serve. We studied Roger Federer's kick serve. Sam Stozer maybe has the greatest kick serve man or woman. She, she has an amazing kicker and she uses it so well tactically. But when you have a girl like that, okay, of course, you want to spend time developing the kick serve. But many female players, it's really a waste of time to develop a kick. They don't need it. They're, they can make a lot of money without it on tour. Why, why do you want to spend time doing it when it's not going to work in a match, you know, that's what I don't understand, so I have a little girl now who I'm coaching from, uh, she comes down from Connecticut, she comes down a couple hours to work with me, and she was trying to learn a kicker, I said, you know, let's, let's put that in the background, like screensaver mode, and let's focus on hard slice, that's going to pay dividends now, let's get you at the highest ranking you can get, let's get, let's get good results where you're not getting, you know, your serve's not getting tuned, like a piano, because when little kids throw in a kicker, it just sits there like a little bunny rabbit waiting to be, uh, you know, waiting to be uh, hunted down. It, it, it's like a snowball waiting to be, uh, ready, waiting to be blasted. It's like a, 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 a sandwich waiting to be eaten. It's just sitting there. A kick serve has to kick. It has to have a big kick. And a lot of girls just can't make that happen. And don't tell me that's like sexist or it's wrong. It's just a fact. It's a... A physiological fact that that women can't produce as much power in their shoulders, and a lot of times they're better off hitting that hard slice that stays low and it's hard to it's hard to attack. Come on, fight me on that if you'd like, guys. Come on, come at me. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm crazy. Tell me I'm being sexist. It's not sexist. I'm just being real here. I'm not saying don't teach it to a girl. You got a big, strong girl. who has got a powerful shoulder. There we go. It's going to be a great serve. You got a Sam Stozer teach it. But if you got uh, someone petite who doesn't have, doesn't, you know, who's pretty slender or short, man, a lot of times it's a big mistake to teach that girl a kicker as a second serve. Teach him the low slice. It's better. They make more money with that. All right, we've got Kyle Williams says, Chris, do you recommend Eastern backhand grip for the kick serve? Yeah, I get this question a lot. And yes, for, especially for most kids. It's one of the things we talked about in the workshop with the kicker is one of the secrets is you force that grip over really far towards the eastern backhand. You, you make it as extreme as, you, as extreme as you can get, actually. And the grip helps kids to learn spin. It helps them to learn how to graze the ball, which is really important, right? So in, in the workshop, I talked with all of the coaches and I said, it's not just the grip 
helping with the spin. It actually, because it, it forces your wrist to be rather in a kind of a locked position. It feels really uncomfortable when you go Eastern back and grip on a serve. And most kids think it's impossible. Like it's impossible to, to, to open up, to, to get the racket face to the ball and to, to scrape it well and get it up over the net. They have, a lot, they have a really hard time with that. So what I recommend is you go, you force it that way and don't let the kids change. Be very demanding and be very strict about it. And what you get is if the kids do that for a couple weeks, they learn to loosen their wrist. They learn to become more whippy with their forearm and wrist. And, and so the grip actually helps to change the, the tension in the, lower, in the lower forearm and in the wrist. And I think that's really critical. And that's, that's something that I, I've never heard anyone really talk about. Yes, the grip itself will help with spin. But for me, it's more about what the grip is doing to the lower arm, creating less tension and forcing the player to learn how to whip the arm or the racket up to the ball. And that's what, in the end, uh, teaches them how to do the kicker. And if you can get that, the kids can oftentimes go to a less extreme grip if they'd like. They can move the grip back because they've learned, they've learned to accelerate. My dog is screaming right now at something. Hold on, guys. Sammy, what's going on? That's totally unacceptable. I'm doing a show right now. I'm going to put you in your cage. Yeah. All right, I'm putting him in a cage. Unbelievable. It's in the middle of the show. He's barking at some other dog. You have no manners. Get in there. Sorry, guys. Any other questions on the kick, sir? Should I go over some myths? Any more myths? Or should we talk about parents? Oh, I love parents. I'm so pro-parent. Should we talk about parents? Should we talk a little more kick serve? What do you think, guys? Do I have any more myths here? I think we covered all the myths. Okay. I think we should transition to parents. So, I am a parent. I am a parent of four kids, right? Brian Bleem says myths. Kick serve myths or you want to talk about parenting stuff? Kick serve myth. Are there any other kick serve myths? Oh, we had a, a request for one or two more kick serve myths. Mm. Kick serve development. So, what do I see? The biggest biggest mistakes that kids make, coaches make. Okay, I'll, I'll help. I'll, I'll I'll give you a few of those kick serve. Here's the here's the deal. What a lot of kids do is they will. Here's a few dangers. Big danger is tossing the ball too far backwards. Backwards behind the baseline. And that creates an impact point. I'm going to try to explain this to you guys without visual. An impact point more over the back shoulder, which is more dangerous for the shoulder. So the impact point is more over the right shoulder for a right-handed player when the impact point for a kickser should be over the head or slightly forward over the left shoulder. So the toss goes too far backwards towards the back fence or back wall, and this is very common. So kids will make impact behind them. Their body will slide forward and they make the impact behind them. It allows them to get a pretty decent shape on the ball, but the kickser is usually slower and, and there's a... It's, there's more load on the shoulder when you, when you have an impact point like that. This is a very common problem in, in 
kids. I, I work mostly with, with young kids, um, all the way up to teenagers. And I think it's one of the hardest things for a coach to see because you have to look from a profile point of view at the player and you have to understand where the impact, you have to have a very good eye. You can use video analysis too. I think my eye is, I'm able to do, to do it without the video help typically, but sometimes video is useful for teaching. You, you, you have to look at the relationship between the ball from the side point of view. Uh, the ball with the body and the ball should be struck up either above the head or slightly forward and a lot of players will make the impact behind their, their head over their right shoulder, which, is, which can increase the risk of, of injury. It doesn't mean you're going to get injury, but it, it, it's more load for the shoulder. In addition, of course, as you know, tossing extreme to the left can put more load on the shoulder. The, the shoulder's in a very weak position when it's extreme left. Uh, these are all for right-handed players, these, these examples. So those are two very dangerous situations for the shoulder and that's why I say if you're going to teach the kick serve you have to have a good knowledge of the biomechanics you have to understand how to teach it in a safe progression and you have to know the parameters for the kids to stay within so that you can do it in a safe way I think it it is irresponsible to just go out and start teaching the kick serve willy-nilly without a, a very defined method and maybe when I was first getting started I was a little irresponsible, maybe just going back maybe 15 years or, or so. I, I just thought, okay, kick serve, toss left. Uh, I had a few drills that I did for I didn't have a lot of experience. And over the years, knock on wood, thank God I haven't had any any injuries with my players. You know, none that I can re- recall. Nothing, no serious injuries with any of, you know, I've taught hundreds of kick serves to young kids. Granted, they're mostly high-performance kids. I don't work with recreational kids, but I think I could teach it in a very safe way to anyone. And sometimes I get seniors who come to me to learn the kick serve. I have fans of, the, of, of my work online uh, coming from all over. I had uh, guys coming from Europe. I had a guy coming from, from India to just to learn the kick serve with me. Sometimes older guys because uh, they never learned it and they were frustrated. They wanted to learn the kick serve. They come to New York to train with me. And I think I can teach it safely pretty much to anyone. Although some people have, sometimes you get old people and they have maybe a, a back issue or a, shoulder, a past shoulder surgery. You have to be, there are some populations you have to be very careful with. But I think if you, if you have a good method and you teach it in a safe way, you understand what the dangers are, you can, you can teach that serve uh, safely and responsibly. So the shoulder, too far to the left, extra load on the shoulder. Too far behind, which is the one that a lot of coaches don't see, too much load on the shoulder. And I see lots of kids coming to me, they're tossing in weird places in relationship to their body, and that's going to put stress on the shoulder. Uh, and over time, you're doing a lot of repetitions like that, and you can see what, what, what could happen. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it could happen. You also won't get as good a serve if you toss too far to the left. If you toss too far behind you, the serve's going to have less action and less, uh, less speed. You know, the speed is critical, speed and spin. What else? A, a, a very common danger on this, the, the kick serve is you see kids that are they're not fluid, so they'll kind of, they'll be very abrupt, they'll be jerky, they'll be very angular, with it, with the way, uh, with the way they'll have very sharp edges to the when they're doing the serve. The serve should be fluid. 
There should be a, a rhythm to it. And a lot of kids will be herky-jerky. They'll be very abrupt in their, their, their approach to hitting the ball. And those are high-risk for, for injury. Can't, those, can't, those kids are, high, are candidates for, for injury. If a kid starts to jerk their back into a, into a hyperextension before they toss, some kids will do that. Some kids will toss extreme to the left and have a severe arch of their lower back. They'll push their belly button out. And so that is, that is a, those kids are, 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 are serious candidates for a lower back injury like a stress fracture. You have to be very, very careful. Make sure that the player is rhythmic and fluid. They don't have these uh, sharp, angular, uh, jerky movements. Everything should be under control and, and, and fluid. And the back, the upper back only starts to arch as the toss goes up. You sometimes see players who are severely hyperextending their back before the toss is gone. Sorry, guys. I got Sammy barking up a storm. I got alarms going off. I really apologize. We're not starting off the 2020 season with very, very professionally. Or Sammy, you got to be more professional, buddy. This is a professional program. No, I'm just kidding, guys. We just keep it legit. This is just me and my kitchen talking junior high performance. You know I keep it real. I keep it real to level 10. You guys know that. Come on. This, is, this ain't no fancy country club show. This is the real stuff. Brian Bleem says, tips for a consistent toss. Yeah, tossing, tossing tips. Well, okay. Good question, Brian. Thanks. The, the big, big deal, biggest, the biggest deal is not turning before you toss. You want to toss typically with your, your tossing arm between 0 and 30 degrees to the baseline. The, some people say toss towards the net post, something like that type of angle. You know, there's a window there that you can toss in. But a lot of kids, when you tell them to toss to the left, they'll immediately turn and do like a J toss. Sometimes it's called a J toss where the tossing arm is parallel to the baseline. You have to be very careful with that because that will make the toss very hard to control and hard to place well. So the toss should be between, I don't know what the exact angle is, maybe zero and definitely between zero and 60 degrees, but it should be angled towards the net post, the tossing arm, and it should go straight up that way. And then the ball should be arced over. And a lot of kids will start to turn too much before the toss is released, before the, the ball is released, and that is a big mistake. So I always say toss and then coil, toss and then turn. Don't turn and then toss, and most kids turn and then toss. You have to be careful about that. The other mistake with the toss is when the toss is too perpendicular to the baseline. That is also a mistake, typically very hard to control the ball that way and hard to coil. Similar to a Robin Soderling type tossing action, you just don't see that type of style very often. He did it well, but that would, I would not recommend that to young kids. So you try to get their tossing arm in a good alignment. I don't know what the exact degrees are, maybe between 0 and 30, 0 and 60, somewhere in that range towards the net post, and make sure that they release the ball before they start their coiling process. A lot of kids will start, try to do... Uh, a lot of turning and then tossing, and that is a big no-no for the 
uh, toss location. It used to be a guy, Jan Simmerink. I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, in the 90s, my man Jan Simmerink. We had to do a Jan Simmerink reference on this show. You know, I was growing up a serve and volley player. You guys don't realize that because I got the, so many years in Spain now. But, you know, when I was a kid, I was serving volley, man. And I used to love Jan Simmerink. He's from the Netherlands. And he had this massive J toss. And I tried to copy that for a while. I think that was a big mistake. Thanks a lot, Jan. You got me doing the J toss, you know, turning a lot and then tossing. And he was able to do it. He had an amazing lefty serve. But typically that is not recommended. And I wouldn't recommend the opposite extreme either, which is the solderling. Is solderling from... Is he from Netherlands too? No. That would be weird if they're both from the same country. But you have those two extremes, right? You have... You have the Soderling style, or Soderling from Sweden. I think Soderling's from, uh, doesn't matter. You have the Soderling style, which is perpendicular, and you have the Jan Simmering J-toss, which is past parallel, before the, you know, as, or before as the toss is released. So you definitely don't want to be like that, guys. No Jan Simmering and no Soderling. Try to be more conservative with the tossing arm. As far as the release, uh, to get the ball more to the left, you usually hold on to the ball a little longer so that it drifts behind you. You don't want to release it too early. If you release it too early below the whatever, the head or the eyes or the face, or the shoulder line, if you release it too early, it will go too much forward or too far to the right. The goal is to hold on to the ball and get it to drift over to over the shoulder between 11 and 12 o'clock. You know, trying to go past 11. This is for right-handed players, trying to go too extreme to the left, right? So that's the other thing. You want to release the toss at a, at a good moment. A, a little. You want to hold on to it a little longer, which helps drift it to the left. If you let go of it too soon, it usually drifts forward to the right, and that creates more of a slicing action. So hope that helps. Hope that helps, Brian. Thanks for tuning in, buddy. Coming a fan of the show. Yo, my my main man in Istanbul. Sorry, I forgot your name, amigo. He said he watched 15 of the episodes already. He listened to 15 podcasts already. And as you guys know, these podcasts are not like the 20, 30-minute deals. These are the real deal, like hour, sometimes hour and a half podcast, because I guess I'm, I've got a lot to say late at night here in my kitchen. So this guy's a super fan. I really appreciate that. Thank you, my friend. Jerry Malfay is waving. What's up, Jerry? You want to talk kickser, man? Chime in. I know you're the technical guru online. Kyle Williams says, seems like the J-Toss is dead. I hardly see any D1 players with the J-Toss. The J-Toss has always been dead, Kyle. Nobody does the J-Toss. The only guy who did the J-Toss was Simmerink. Maybe I had my buddy. I had a buddy in juniors, Dennis, Dennis Badden. is my doubles partner. He's a great player. He was like top five in the country in the... 12s or 14s, great player. Whatever happened to Dennis Badden? Anyway, my buddy Dennis, he had a J-Toss, but dude, he was one of the only ones too. You never see the J-Toss. J-Toss has been dead. J-Toss should stay dead. It's very hard to control the toss that way. Try it. It's difficult. The ball arcs a lot. Jan Simrick, though, he's my man. Jan Simrick got nasty lefty, sir. Come on, guys. You don't know what I'm talking about. Look him up. Jan. J-A-N. Simmering. All right, let's talk parents a little bit because I know parents are going to want to hear that stuff. I got some, you know, there's some dude flaming me online right now. 
I forget the dude's name, but dude, stop flaming my post, man. I, I write, I write good posts. You know, I have, I have stuff to say. And then you get these bunch of, you get a bunch of idiots trying to, you know, flame my opinion, flame my work. It's no, it's not cool, man. Like I've said, parents have an obsession that parents have in a good way. They're obsessed with, I, I said five things to make them, uh, to make their child into a champion. They're obsessed with five things. The guy says, oh, obsession is a negative, uh, negative whatever. It's, 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 you know, why you gotta flame me like that, man? Just get, get the hell out. Don't, don't be part of my post then. If you got something, you don't have anything good to say. You know, what I like is comments that are either, you know, I like a thumbs up too, but I like people that, you know, you want to challenge me, challenge me with something intelligent. That's the bottom line. I'm putting up intelligent thoughts. And if you don't like it, post, post something yourself that's intelligent and let's debate it. But don't, don't give me stupid criticism or worse, attack me. I've had people attack, attack me ad hominem, you know, attack my, my reputation, uh, tell me I wasn't a good enough player to talk. Like you have to be number one in the world to have an opinion now online. So what if I didn't make it on ATP? I had a lot of injuries, whatever. That means I, I'm not allowed to talk now about coaching or anything. Coaching is very different than playing. Uh, stuff like that. How people attack Prodigy Maker. That's my brand, Prodigy Maker. You don't like it? Okay. You know what? What can I tell you? I got a lot of prodigies that I developed. That's Prodigy Maker. What am I supposed to call it? It's a good name. I got the website. Go to it, prodigymaker.com. You got, it's got all my articles for free on prodigymaker.com. I'm making prodigies every day. Why do people have a problem with that? What do you want me to call it? Prodigy builder? Prodigy developer? Prodigy incubator? Prodigy helper? Come on, people. It's just Prodigy Maker. Stop giving me a hard time about it. That's the way it is. All the little prodigies coming to me. I got the little Mo national champion right now. She's amazing. Come on. Brian Bleem says, kick serve, man. Toss and then turn. I like that tip. How about the grip on the ball? Oh, grip on the ball is easy, man. It's like, oh, you know, I don't know. if it's, People debate how many fingers should be on the ball. I like to have at least first the four, including the thumb. Some people toss it with two. Have you ever seen the reverse toss with the palm up? That's cool. Like that's like a Jan Simmering deal. Very rare. Have you guys seen that? People who toss with the palm up? That's awesome, man. I would usually change that. I, I, I'm joking. I'm being sarcastic. I don't typically like that. The wrist should be firm. The toss should come from the shoulder. The wrist joint shouldn't be moving. So the wrist shouldn't be flipping. The, I think it's best to recommend most of the fingers on the ball. If you can get all three of the, the, the thing, not including the thumb. If you get all four of the, the fingers, not including the thumb on the ball, that's good. Or, or the three, or three, not including the pinky. Sometimes the pinky's off. Some players toss only with two, two fingers and the thumb. That's kind of weird. It should be at least three fingers on the ball. Can be four fingers on the ball. The, the palm should be open, the shoulder should do the work, the arm should be straight, and the, the, finger, the, the hand usually opens, you know, like the old country club tip, like a flower blossoming, 
you know, the, the, the hand should just release, like you should place the toss up there and, and don't chuck it too much. So those are typically what, what you tell kids in the toss. But the key is usually targets, you know, making a circle, making a, a lot of practice reps, but don't just practice the toss by itself. Try to practice it with the full motion and, and you know, make, make a good target zone for the player so that they can visualize where the toss needs to be. And typically that'll work itself out. I think tossing just by itself sometimes disconnects the movement, the, the, the flow of the other arm. It's better to coordinate the whole thing. And I think you get a little better result if you practice the toss with the other arm working in, in, in synchrony rather than just separating the two. But, you know, to be honest, whatever. If you, any, any tossing is probably helpful to some extent, especially you get kids to go home and they don't have, they don't have access to a tennis court and you just get them to do a lot of tossing. Anything that's using the non-dominant arm is probably helpful. But it's generally better to have the racket in the, in the right hand and do a lot of the tossing with the, the, like the full rhythm of the motion, I think, rather than just tossing with the left hand by itself, if that makes sense to you. All right, hope that helped. Let's get on to parenting myths, man. It's not, not so much myths, but it's, it's things that parents overlook. And I'm a parent. I have competitive athletes now. I have my daughter, who's a competitive wrestler. I'm really proud of her because it takes a lot of guts to get into the wrestling circle with boys, uh, particularly female wrestlers have to, have to battle a lot of boys. And my son is a competitive cross-country and track and field runner now, and my kids are still young, so I'm really getting excited to train them this year. And I'm thinking about what, I think a lot about what parents should and should not do for their children and how parents should approach their child's development and what they can do to support their children. And so I came up with a short list, not only of things that I'm doing for my children, particularly because I don't know as much about their sports as I know about tennis. Sometimes I joke with them, why couldn't you guys have just chosen tennis? Because I know a lot about tennis, and I, I wouldn't have to do as much research into your, your sports if you had just played tennis, because... You know, it would have been a lot easier for me, but at the same time, here's my growth mindset. I'm learning a lot about some other sports. I'm learning a lot about other, I'm learning from other coaches because I get to study with my children's coaches. I'm always fascinated watching other coaches work. I don't care the sport. I like watching other coaches work. I like seeing the techniques of other sports. I'm very interested in the biomechanics of other sports. So it's been a fascinating year for me. I've been learning a lot about wrestling. I've been learning about wrestling technique. I've been learning about gymnastics because we have an excellent Russian coach who believes that good wrestlers are good gymnasts and gymnastics and wrestling are, are very much intertwined, in, especially in the junior development years. So I've been learning a lot about ancillary athletic skills training in relation to my kids' sports. I've been learning a lot about running and running mechanics and and also the journey of competing, going to competitions with my, my son and my daughter. Uh, this is my eldest daughter and my older son. has been really informative for me, very edifying, because I'm learning. I, I see how other parents approach their, their specific sports. And I'm, I'm learning all about... I, I see, I, I'm making a lot of comparison and contrast between 
between the world of tennis and the world of other sports. And each sport has its own culture and, and sort of the, its own mores. And I find it fascinating to compare and contrast the world that I know so well, tennis, with these other, these other arenas that I'm experiencing. So, for example, I was at my, my daughter's wrestling tournament last week, and it's just a fascinating experience to see how, for example, in a wrestling tournament, there's a, an umpire, a referee for every match. It never happens in tennis. In tennis, there's rarely a, a referee around. And maybe there's one or two walking around, you have to go grab them. The kids are pretty much left to compete on their own, which I think is a, uh, I think it's a travesty, to be quite honest. I think it's a shame. It's an embarrassment for the sport that we let the young children uh, compete out there and keep their own score, and, and they, don't, they don't have any super, uh, proper supervision. Uh, but look at the sport of wrestling, where every child has a supervised match with an adult watching over them. And I just think it's so healthy. You know, there's uh, another example in wrestling is the parents are always, always involved in the matches. Parents are, are sometimes to a, to a negative degree. Parents are yelling at their kids. They're participating in the, the, the rounds. You know, there's a lot of parents are coaching in wrestling. And you just don't see that. It's not allowed in most junior tennis tournaments. Some are. In some UTR tournaments, they allow it now. But... Typically, the parents are divorced from their children at junior tennis tournaments, and the kids are generally unsupervised. There's no adult to guide the matches, and I just think that's a huge mistake in the tennis world. I've written and I've talked a lot about it on this show in previous episodes. But in general, when we're talking about parenting, I I get back to the basics. What makes a good sports parent? What makes... What do the best parents do? The parents of champions, the parents of prodigies, what do they do differently? What do they prioritize differently than the parents of losers? You know, and I hate to say it so bluntly, but you have parents who figured it out. They figured out the formula and they have winners. And you have parents who, for better or for worse, they're focusing on the wrong things. They're not prioritizing the right things. And in the end, their kid is becomes becomes a loser. Their kid their kid underperforms. And what what interests what interests me is what good parents do to make their kids overperform, to make their kids overachieve. And for example, the number one I call it an obsession. The, the number one obsession that I think the good sports parents do, the parents of champions do, is they're excessive planners and they're very, very organized. So I always like to tell the story of this kid. I'm not going to say who it, who it is because I don't want to... I, I, I still have a relationship with the family and, and stuff. But it's a kid that I coached maybe, I don't know, a while back. I won't tell you when. And this kid ended up being about 30... 30 in the country, mid-30s in the country, which is pretty good in boys, right? And he went on to play Division I college on full scholarship. So he's a pretty good player, right? But I can tell you, this kid could have been a pro. And he could have been, I I don't want to say top 100, but he could have been much better than just a college player. And... It, it all started in the juniors when his parents 
God bless them. They just could not get their shit together. They're just so disorganized, you know. And I'd hear, oh, we signed up for this tournament. Then, oh, we couldn't make it or something came up. Or there's a, there was just no organization, no planning. And I tried to help with that, of course. But in the end, usually the parents def- help define a child. I don't want to say it's always that way because there's there's always exceptions where a kid just makes it through sheer grit and determination or they're just blessed and they make it. I know you guys can think of cases like that. But in general, the parents in many ways shape the journey of a kid and in many ways determine the success of a kid. I was talking to a good friend of mine and we agreed that oftentimes the parent is what's driving a kid to succeed. And if the parents are doing a good job, the kid has a higher likelihood of success. And if the parents are neglecting something or missing something, that's the, their, their kid may, may not make it. And so, you know, this kid was so talented and, you know, he'd be late to practice. They'd cancel practice once or twice a week. No show, couldn't make it. Always going away for different things. And there, there were just a lot of momentum killers and a lot of disorganization in the whole, the whole, in all of his training and, and also at tournaments. So just imagine that situation. You got a kid who, who's an amazing talent, really great ability, but the parents couldn't, it, it's just a shit show with the parents. The parents couldn't get their act together. They, they weren't really good planners, weren't very organized. And in the end, the kid did fairly well, but... To me, he underachieved. He didn't really achieve as much. Now, if that kid had had some champion parents, some champion parenting, you know, the parents were on the ball, everything planned, everything organized. Uh, they understood the whole process and how to do it really well for him. I think he could have done a lot better than, than the way it turned out. But that's just one example, and I think there's many, many examples of that. Uh, sometimes you get a kid who's not as gifted, but their parents are super good with the organization and some of the other quote-unquote obsessions or positive things that parents can do. I'll, I'll share them all with you in, in a moment. But when parents are really good and they got all their ducks in a row and they're, they're organized and well-planned and, and that is such a blessing for a kid, it really helps pave the way to success. So... My number one rule for parents, if you want to do a good job with your children, I don't care if it's wrestling or track and field or cross country or whatever sport you're doing. I don't care if it's not a sport. It could be anything. It could be piano. It could be spelling bee. I'm a spelling bee dad. My daughter does the national spelling bee. She does the, the national spelling bee search. She does the scripts. You know, she does the whole thing. You, you have to be organized. You have to be plan. You have to have a plan. You should have a development plan. How many of your parents out there have a development plan? If you're listening to this show, you have a plan. You have it written down. You have a document. So I started seriously with my daughter in wrestling just this year. She just told me she wants to get serious. Very exciting for me. And then I realized I don't have any plan. What the hell am I going to do? I, I, there's a lot. A lot of things I have to organize. And organizing is not really my, if ask my wife, organization is not my greatest strength, you know. But it's something that I work really hard on because I know it's not, it's something that's not my natural, it's not a natural ability that I have. I'm not really like a spreadsheet kind of guy. 
But I, I work really hard on, on being better at that because I know it, it helps my work. It helps me be more successful. So the first thing I did was I made an annual development plan for my daughter for her wrestling. And I did the same for my son and his running for, for this whole year. So I have their calendar of tournaments sort of mapped out. I have, I set, I did a whole uh, page of goal setting with them and I review it with them so that they're on the, they know what we're working towards. And we, we, you know, we did a number of things like that, that will just help organize the whole thing because uh, it, it is daunting sometimes when you have a kid who is in, who wants to achieve uh, high performance in whatever field it is, whether it's sports or anything else, the, the planning and the organizing, having a blueprint, having a, uh, in a way, a business plan so that you can have a successful outcome is critical. And also planning, the, also the scheduling, just the nuts and bolts. There's so much, there's so much little, little details that you have to do as a parent. I have great respect for parents who are driving their, their kids to tournaments. They're signing their kids up online for events. They're planning out the hotel and the, the, the food and, and the, the, the equipment. All, all the details that go in to preparing your child to have a good a good competition, it, that's also important too. You know, have parents who show up, the kids are not prepared, they didn't get good sleep, they didn't they didn't have good nutrition, which is which are um, some of the other keys. It's, it's very important that the nutrition and and uh, sleep things like that. We can talk a little more about that, but you know, they they show up late for things, they're they're not prepared well, and that really ends up harming or undermining the the child's achievement you know it, it undermines what they're going to be able to do so i can't stress that enough you have many coaches who also fail at that many coaches also do not have good planning i get a lot of students who come to me because i'm good at planning now i do lots and lots of planning with my students i have meetings with families how many of you coaches out there how many of you parents have regular meetings with your coach or how many coaches have regular meetings with parents and the kids how many of you guys do that you should be getting that i have parents that can't believe when i spend time i spend an hour i'll spend an hour and a half on the phone with with family trying to map out the development for their child because that is an important part of coaching if you don't do that you don't have a plan you, you can plan to fail you're not going to make the same steady progress. Everything has to be mapped out. The tournaments, the training, the goal setting, all of that should be mapped out. And the kids should be plugged in on that and the parents should be plugged in. It's a whole team effort. That's the way development should go. doesn't matter if it's in tennis or in any, anything else. And so I think that's critical. Let's see, what else? I talked about... One second, guys. Let me dial up my, my last article here. Parent obsessions. Another one that I, I'm a big believer in that I see a lot with parents is on the physical and injury prevention side. So here's something that if you don't know your, your kid's sport, you can hopefully you have a background in, in, in some sort of sports or athletics and you know about injury prevention, you know how to take care of the body, you know how, how to prehab, how to rehab, and you understand that you need to get those resources for your kid, like getting a good doctor, a good physio, 
the parents who I've encountered in tennis who have the most successful kids, they're really good at that. They have a team around them. They have a good ortho doctor. They have a good physiotherapist. They might have someone they look to for nutrition or other uh, rehab, like maybe a chiropractor, massage therapist. They have, they have people on their team that they use um, to take care of injuries and also to prevent injuries, like a trainer. A trainer is very important, someone who is knowledgeable about the body. So some parents are lucky enough to have that themselves, and if they don't, they develop a team around them to help both prevent and to treat injuries, because injuries, after all, are part of the athletic journey, right? So what else? Uh, for parents, parents that I've encountered also have an obsession with nutrition, Nutrition is often overlooked, but if you have a well-fed, well-fueled, well-hydrated kid, you're going to get much better tennis results and much better results in other, any other sport. So these are things that I've been working on, for example, with my daughter. I, I don't know wrestling as much. I'm trying to learn wrestling as fast as I can. I know martial arts. I know grappling. I know jiu-jitsu. I know boxing, but I, I don't know the sport of wrestling as well. So I'm learning all about the technical side, but let's say, you know, there are many people that are in tennis, many parents who don't know that much about tennis. So by all means, learn as much as you can about tennis and technique and tactics. But in the meantime, make sure that your kid is getting good nutritional advice, getting good meals, good timing of meals at tournaments, good timing of snacks. Make sure you're monitoring their hydration levels, their their electrolyte levels, you know, make sure you really understand nutrition and that the kids are getting fueled properly. That's critical. And that's something I help my son and my daughter with. And I don't need to be an expert in their sport to help them with that. I just happen to have that knowledge from taking lots of sports science classes. But again, if I didn't have that knowledge, I would seek out help and bring the uh, experts in to help uh, as a team to help uh, my athlete. So that's another very important part, nutrition. You have planning, you have injury prevention, you have nutrition. Another one is, is recovery. And I think recovery is very often overlooked. Parents who are former athletes or they understand, they, un, they have a good understanding of athletics, realize that, that for a kid, the recovery is paramount. If you can't get the kid ready for the next day, they're not going to be able to play well and win a tournament. You have to be able to have a a kid ready, not only for the first day, but the second day and potentially additional days of a tournament in order for them to win. So the champion tennis players always have to have a good recovery. In a sport like cross country or track and field, like my son does a race and it typically that's it. It's just one race and he doesn't have another one the next day. Recovery becomes a little less critical. In a sport like tennis, man, tennis is very recovery oriented because Usually the tournaments, especially the big tournaments, are multiple days. So it's critical for the player's success that the parent understands recovery. Or again, they bring someone in who is an expert or they learn themselves. They get trained in recovery. Recovery could be sleep. Sleep is a big one. A lot of parents overlook sleep. Recovery could be, uh, could be massage, could be stretching, could be different... Uh, Therapies like hot and cold therapy, hydrotherapy is one of my favorite recovery methods. I, I have my kids doing ice, ice baths, 
learning how to take care of their bodies with, with ice and heat, hot baths, uh, uh, hot to cold uh, transition, you know, uh, hydrotherapy. Sometimes it's called contrast hydrotherapy. That's also very good to uh, you know, release lactate, release metabolic waste from the cells. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to reduce soreness and to make players feel better the next day. And in my experience, the kids who underperform are often the kids who don't have a parent driving those sort of issues. They're not prioritizing those those subjects, you know, unfortunately, those parents are barking up a different tree. They're probably yelling at their kid for not hitting the volley right or not finishing the point or double faulting rather than focusing on something really positive that would help their kid like nutrition, like injury prevention, like organizing their, their tennis better. You know, so typically I see uh, bad parenting and, and it can be quite harsh and negative. Uh, in general, parents should be uplifting for a child in general. I know some parents, I'm not saying don't be demanding. I believe in being demanding the way, just like Tony Nadal. I believe he calls it in being exigent. Exigent means demanding, synonym for demanding. In Spanish, I think it's exigente. To be exigent, to be demanding is really important, uh, but there's a way to do it with some warmth. And there's a way to do it in a positive way rather than a way that tears down your child. So just another piece of advice for you parents that are trying to parent. Be tough. Be demanding. Be exigent. But also do it in a positive way. Please try not to tear down your kid. Try not to torch your relationship with the kid. After all, after the sports are finished, after the tournaments are, are all done, you want to have a good relationship with your kid for their life, for their lifetime. And, and many, parents can, many parents do ruin the relationship with their child by being overly harsh, being, being demanding to the point of madness. That is a huge mistake. You can't be demanding to the point of madness. You have to be tough, but not crazy, and not too crazy. And you have to be demanding, but to be warm, to be a, a, a parent who can still connect emotionally with their child uh, and not just be the drill sergeant or, and not just to be negative. Balance your negative criticisms with a lot of positive, a lot of positivity and a lot of encouraging, uplifting, motivational talk. Because in the end, it's a tough road. For any athlete, it's tough. And it's best to have the parent playing a supportive role as much as possible. That doesn't mean not demanding. I'm not saying that. It, it can, what I'm saying is there's a middle way, and most parents feel that you, you're either like a softy, marshmallow parent, or you got to be like this tough-ass Robert Lansdorp-style parent. And I'm saying that there's a middle road, and that's the best road for most kids. Let's see. The one last obsession I think we had was... Ah, uh, character building. Yes, character building. Guys, if you're parenting an athlete and you want them to have the most success possible from the youngest years, you start building the kid's character. You start training their mindset. Teach them to be a good learner. Teach them the talent of listening and respecting what the coach or parent says. Teach them good behavior so that they 
won't waste as much time along the journey and that they will that people will want to help them because they're respectful and well behaved you know nothing like raising a brat who no one wants to help don't do that keep your kid humble you know teach your kid to be a hard worker teach your kid to sacrifice and suffer on the court teach your kid how to focus and stay in the moment how to how how to not let anything distract them from the task at hand. Teach your kid all of these important mental skills and and character uh, and develop their character so that not only can they be good in their sport, but they can be also very successful in life. And I, I'm I'm so passionate about the philosophy of Tony Nadal because a lot of the things I just said come from Tony and I'm a huge believer in his his philosophy about building character and how building character not only makes you a better person, but it also makes you a more, it gives you, it makes success in your respective sport easier because, you know, kids with a lot of behavior problems, they don't learn as well. They get distracted very easily. They lose control of their emotions and they don't make progress as quickly as someone who's in control of their emotions and someone who's in control of their behavior. And, at the same time, someone who's very poorly behaved, oftentimes the coaches around them, they don't want to help them because they reflect poorly on the coaches or they're very difficult to work with. So it's hard to get, it's hard to enlist help when you're, if your child is a, is a real, real bad apple, really poorly behaved, it's hard to enlist good people to help your child. So teach your child values, good values, teach your child all of the, the things I mentioned about character, and there, there is more, but teach them how to be a good person in life. Teach them all the, all the discipline that they're going to need to sacrifice along the journey. And, and if you start that process from a young age, by the time your kid is a teenager, which are difficult years, for many kids go through a tumultuous teenage years, you will have a much more manageable teenager and you'll be able to get through the teenage years very successfully. In my experience... The parents who don't address the character part, they don't address the mindset part pre-teenage years, they end up in a lot of trouble. And many times the kids can become difficult to handle and the behavior can become out of control. And then you have a very difficult situation to manage. You have a teenager out of control who wants to be really good at their sport. Uh, not, Not ideal. It's much better pre-teenage years to get all of the character development done. Get the mindset in a good place. Obsess on those, those skills that your kid's going to need later on when, they, when they're competing and battling and what they're going to need when they're going through difficult moments of their life like in the teenage years. Do that early on so that your child is ready because if you try to fix everything during the teenage years, it's usually too late. And that is uh, sometimes sad but true. But once the, the kids are in the teenage years, they're off to the races, sometimes you can't get control of them and you lose them. So pre-teenage years, get the character right. Focus on that. Prioritize that. It's a good segue to Nick Kyrgios because Nick Kyrgios is one of those dudes who probably didn't get that character development when he needed it at a young age. I don't know if I want to blame his parents or his coaches, but clearly he needed someone like Tony Nadal working with him when he was younger. 
it's a scary thought to think about what Uncle Tony could have done with a young Nick Kyrgios. Because if Nick had had better character development, a firmer hand, stronger guidance, when he was younger, you, he'd probably be a multiple Grand Slam winner right now. He'd be number one in the world. Because I truly believe he's the best next-gen talent on the professional tour right now. I've watched some of his matches. I've watched a lot of his highlights online. And he's just incredible. The, the, the shot-making ability, the movement, the power, the touch and control, the creativity. He's got it all. He's the dream for a coach in terms of physicality and athleticism and shot-making ability. He's the dream. But he has serious flaws in his character. He doesn't have a good mindset for tennis. His attention span is lacking. He has a lot of problems with his emotional control and, and his behavior. So you see that very clearly a player like that is being, his success is being undermined by his lack of character. And that's sort of what I'm getting at. As parents, you don't want to develop a, a monster. You don't want a, a, an athlete who, who becomes a monster. You want to shape that athlete, shape the character, shape the mind, shape the brain when they're young, before they become a teenager. Please, before they become a teenager. Teenagers are hard to control. Do that when the kids are young so they have the greatest chance for success. It doesn't mean that someone with bad behavior, someone who who's, uh, has a lot of mental problems, can't be great. They can still be great, but the road to greatness is much harder when you have mental problems. The road to greatness is much harder when you have deficits in your character. It's, much, it's a much easier road when you have all of those aspects that I was talking about, when you have those ingrained and that's the genius of Tony Nadal. That's what he did with Raphael. You see that Raphael has these amazing character aspects. You can see it in the way he carries himself, in the way he's the only top player who's never broken a racket, right? I don't think, know if he's ever tossed a racket. He has a great respect and humility when he walks on the court, when, he, when he's playing, when he's when you hear him in interviews, and, and, and this is all comes from Tony, where Tony taught Raphael to be humble champion, to be a hard worker, yes, to be a good learner, respectful, to be well-behaved. Uncle Tony forced that on him. He was rather strict with Rafa when he was a kid. But that's what someone like Nick Kyrgios needs. He needs that very badly. And I don't know, it's never too late. Sometimes uh, someone can come in when someone's older and make a big change. You see it in the military. You'll have a lot of military family. And you see that sometimes you get... You, you see teenagers uh, or fully grown adults who come into the military and they are, they are changed. You know, their character is formed or reformed and they become... Uh, strong and and w with good val they they gain good values all from from uh, mentoring and and a program a strict program strict regimen uh, of uh, indoctrination 
that happens uh, in, in military boot camps and things like that. So it is possible to change your character and to change your behavior and your mindset at an older age. But man, it's a, it's a lot harder. So someone like Kyrgios has a big challenge now. I'm hoping that he can hook up with a mentor coach who can shape him and make a dramatic change in his behavior and in his character. If that happens, then I think he can be one of, one of the great players on tour, definitely a multiple Grand Slam winner. Just watching him outclass other professionals on the world stage is, is tremendous. He, he, he'll go up against Roger or Rafa or any of the top next-gen players now. The last match with Tsitsipas that he played was just amazing. That he, he can match. These are the best talents in the world. These are the best athletes in tennis. And he can just go toe-to-toe -to -toe with those guys like it's nothing. And come up with incredible shots that no one else can do to these players. And it must, these guys must feel the talent from this guy, Kyrgios. And, and the only thing that gives them solace is that he, he's, a mental, he, he's a mental stick of dynamite. You just don't know when he's going to blow up. You don't, he's a, he, can, he can be a train wreck. Or he can play amazing. He can lose his concentration. He can freak out. You know? uh, and this is the only comfort, that, the only protection that these other top players have because as an athlete, he outclasses or at least matches all of them in the, in the entire world. Imagine being that gifted. It's amazing. I certainly never felt that way on a tennis court. The other thing that I love about Kyrgios is it's not just the athleticism, but the, cre the creative shot making. He's really fun to watch. And I know that almost all of my young students love him. They love watching him. They, I, I, wish, I, I hope they're not role modeling his behavior. That's a danger. But they just love watching the shots that he comes up with. His mind is so creative. He has tremendous touch. He has beautiful drop shots. Example is the underhand serve, where he's using that serve now as a trademark. And a lot of other players are using it. It's a shot that I never even considered as a legitimate shot, and he's using it effectively. I saw him do an underhand serve, serve and volley. How often do you see that? His tweener shots are amazing. His, he can even do tweener lobs. A lot of no-look no-look shots. It's very, very entertaining to see what he's going to come up with. Now, maybe he does it a little too much because he's not mature and he doesn't have a good coach guiding him right now. But that can change. You know, Agassi was a lot like that. When Agassi was, was real young and he first came on the tour, I watched a lot of old Agassi videos. He used to be a showman. Reminds me a lot like Kyrgios. You know, he used to be rock and roll, Las Vegas Agassi. And Andre changed his whole personality, changed his mindset, changed his character with the help of mentor coaches like Gil Reyes and Brad Gilbert, for example. And he was able to change his whole, his whole character. And I think something like that could happen with, with Kyrgios. And I'm just, uh, I, I'm hoping that it does. I, I mean, I think he's really good for the game. I think he puts a lot of people in the stands, a lot of people in the seats, a lot of people are watching tennis because of him and his, his uh, dynamic nature, his personality. His, he's very charismatic and very, he, he's very entertaining on the court. So I think he's great for the game because we need personalities like that. They, someone like Kyrgios is a once-in-a-generation player who can transcend the game. 
he can transcend the sport. He can bring in lots and lots of fans from from other from from other arenas. He can bring in fans from other sports. He can he can bring in folks who don't even like tennis and they can be interested in tennis because of his his charisma and personality and and his shot making. He's, He's hard, he's hard not to watch. Whenever he's on, I, I love watching. I just want to see what he does, you know, what he creates. And it's very rare to have a player with that type of talent who also has personality. And I think if, if he can get his stuff together and start winning Grand Slams, he could really propel, drive, drive popularity uh, in tennis for the next decade or more and, and, and really really grow the game, especially with young children and especially in, with, with alternative audiences who, are not necess- who, who maybe uh, wouldn't have normally taken an interest in tennis. He has that ability to cross over into other, uh, into other arenas and pull in audiences from other uh, areas that, uh, that, that typically wouldn't, uh, other, other places where they wouldn't typically watch tennis. So that's what I think is the great potential of Nick Kyrgios. And yeah, you know, you can... People get clouded by his bad behavior. He's like a young, un, uh, he's like a young, undisciplined kid. You know, he's very mature, very mature for his age. I, I, was he like twenty-one or what's? I don't know. What's Kyrgios' age, guys? Throw it out there if you know it. But whatever, he's a young guy. He's very mature for his age. But people, I think, see all the tantrums and the bad behavior, and they they sometimes it clouds their judgment, and they don't see what a what a tremendous talent this guy is like really not just good but off the charts talent like a Roger Federer talent really special talent maybe once in a generation talent but it's just all messed up because of the way his mind is wired right now and the way his character his character is all flawed but that can be that can be changed you know so I just think he's great for the sport and I would like to see better behavior from him as a role model for children. But gosh, every student that I talk to, every young kid that I talk to is like, oh, Kyrgios. So we love Kyrgios. We love watching Kyrgios. We're going to the tournament to see Kyrgios. Because, and that, that has to be good for tennis because we need to get excitement in the game. And, and he's a good counterbalance to some of the more, you know, you know stayed, plain, plain players, players like... You know, you know, Medvedev's a little boring, or, or Sitsipa. I guess Sitsipa's kind of cool with like the Bjorn Borg thing going on. But you know, you get guys who are sort of like the goody two shoes guys who are are very bland in their demeanor. You know, there's not much there's not much excitement going on there. And I mean, there's going to be guys like that who are just very cordial and and very well mannered, and, and they they they're not very you know they're not very energizing on the court. They're not very ebullient on the court. But then uh, we need play, we need those guys. You know, those guys will have their place. And then we need we need guys who are a little edgier and who bring some drama to the court. And I think Kyrus is one of those guys. And and it's sort of the interplay of those different kind of personalities that makes the sport fascinating to to the audience. Uh, Kyrgios really reminds me of, of like a Jimmy Connors or a John McEnroe. He's that type of personality. He, he could transcend the sport. He could draw in tens of thousands of people, young children to play tennis, uh, fans to the tournaments, 
people to the television sets to watch. He, he just has this, uh, he, could, he could be this amazing force for good in tennis. And we just have to sort of try to, someone's got to get in there and coach this, this young kid. He's just, he's just an immature kid. So anyway, those are my thoughts on Kyrgios, guys. Let me know if you agree or disagree. We should wrap up. It's been a great show. We talked kick serve. We talked great parenting, the parenting of champions. We talked a little Nicky Kyrgios. What a, what a, what a player. What, what a shot maker. Uh, we got to get that behavior under, the, under control. But, man, what, what potential to, to help us grow the sport, you know. And I want to thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for all your waves. Thank you for your thumbs up and likes. Thank you for sharing this program with friends. We're trying to drive this audience, grow this audience. We are building a great podcast audience. Tell other people about the podcast. Tell other people about the YouTube show. Tell other people that there's a a serious, intelligent junior tennis development show that they can listen to weekly. And, and enjoy and learn about the process of junior development, learn about technique, learn about Spanish tennis, and ask questions too. Let people know, let your friends know that if they have tennis questions about their, their children, their, their themselves, if they're a coach, let them know and that there's a good resource, uh, totally free, uh, available now. Uh, we're into our second year of broadcasting and we're on episode 31. We're doing very well. We'll try to do another I would say 20 or 30 episodes. We're trying to shoot for 20 or 30 episodes a year. And there's no stopping us. Come on. I want to invite you all to my next workshop. We are doing a, a one-day workshop again at my club, which is the CLTA, Chris Lewis Tennis Academy, in Londonderry, Vermont. We have a workshop coming up on February 17th. Quite proud of those workshops. I put a lot of effort into preparing them and giving the participants my full passion and commitment and we do a full day workshop 9 to 5 p.m. on court and in the classroom the topic for the upcoming workshop is world-class footwork and movement and we're going to go over my whole footwork method how I work with the children how I build the technique of moving what what skills do I emphasize what drills do I like to do with young especially with young children how do we how do we build footwork from the ground up but it can be for any, for, for any age. And I'm, I know I have a lot of followers who are into footwork and movement training. So that's going to be a great workshop coming up. It's one of my areas of expertise. We had a wonderful workshop on this in December. December 23rd was our KickServe workshop. So we're, getting, uh, we're offering some good educational programs for anyone who's in the area. We have people come from all over the Northeast to the club and... We offer free housing there if you want to come sleep over. And it's just a, a lot of fun. You can bring players up. And we have lots of players who are participating in the workshop along with parents and coaches. So it's a lot of fun. Please consider coming out to that. And what else is going on? We have the KickServe workshop coming out on our online school. So if you go to clta.teachable.com, you can browse all of the online courses that we have. And you can also uh, check out the new course. should be up in a couple weeks. It's the entire workshop that we did, seven hours of on-court and classroom training. And we'll put that online soon. And, 
and you can buy it for cheaps. The all of the work all of the workshops and programs at our online school are super cheap. $39 is a typical price. I'm not trying to make a lot of money off of that, but I am trying to help a lot of people with with uh, high quality information at a low price. So hopefully uh, that seems reasonable to you guys. We have our summer camp coming up, our, our high performance summer camp in the mountains of Vermont. We do six and a half weeks. We have players from all over the country. We have international players who come and it's purely focused on serious high performance players. Sometimes we get younger, younger players who are maybe not full tournament players yet, but they want to train seriously. The key for me is if you have a serious young child or you have a serious tournament player, come to our summer camp and they will not be disappointed. It's a lot different than, than the typical summer camp. You have the, like the Nike camps or the, the tennis academy camps in Florida or California. Our camp is much different. It's small. We have only two players per court and coach. I supervise all of the players who are there. I, I work with all the players myself on the court. And we have a professional trainer who's kicking ass on the fitness side. So we've got a very special summer camp. It's not for everyone. It's not a recreational camp. I, I like to select the kids who come. It's for serious players, tournament players. And we do take young players who want to train seriously to get ready for competition. So we've got a lot of passionate players there a lot of committed players, a small staff that I train, and everyone's working closely with me and a very professional trainer. It's an amazing experience. We have the, the club, is, is, it's only dedicated to the children. I own it. There are no adults at all there. It's uh, playing. The, the, adults are, the adults are banned and the children rule. The children rule at my club with outdoor red clay indoor hard courts in case it rains. We have a nice gym set up uh, and beautiful, beautiful scenic land. You know, we're, we're in, we're sandwiched in between three mountains. Just beautiful place to come train. I'm really proud of it. We're in our fourth year. So if you're looking for a great summer camp, please consider that. Uh, just contact me if you need more information on that. And I'm, I'm selling it but I'm telling you, there's a reason I'm selling because I believe that what we're doing there is really special. A lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people just pick like the big names, the academy summer camps in Florida, or kind of like the, the, the names you might know, some of the Nike camps or things like that. We are totally different than those places. We are small, high-performance focused. A lot of those camps are numbers-oriented. They have hundreds of students where the coaches, the, especially the head coach, doesn't really know your kid very well. I'm there. I'm on site. I'm working with every single player. I know every single player by name. I know every single player's game. There's just no comparison when you have the, the head guru, the head honcho who's taking an interest in every single player who comes to the camp. We never take more than 30 players per week. And so I know everyone. I work with everyone. And also the intensity is key. The fitness is not watered down. We push the kids really hard, very demanding fitness sessions, and a lot of focus on injury prevention. So I'm super proud of the summer camp. If you're looking for summer training, please hit me up. You can email me, chris at chrislewitt.com. You can call me, 914-462-2912. So that's it for the, sale, the selling on my camp. Guys, 
Have a great week. We're going to try to put up some uh, new shows every week this month. I'm getting super excited about 2020. Have a great night. God bless. I'll see you on the next show. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Vamos!